that speaks about joy, oftentimes the way they do it, the way it's often done, is by removing or thinking or putting aside any thought of, of pain or any thought of trouble or any th thought of sorrow. But the Christian faith, the, the Christian message doesn't simply want to put away suffering in that sense, but actually wants to challenge us to think about joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of trials, of difficulties. The wonderful song that we have just sung, Jesus paid it all. Yes, in the Christian, in the Christian experience, suffering does not eliminate joy. The experience of trials don't put aside or push away or push out the reality of joy. That's why when we come to realize the Christian experience actually has a different formula for the life of joy than what we hear in the world around us. This morning, I want us to look at a, a wonderful encouragement, a wonderful command in the Bible. The command to rejoice. The command to pursue a life of rejoicing. And we are seeing this in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, uh, verse 7 through verse uh, 10. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, you may find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. And you may find this passage on page number 559. If you're not used to uh, looking at a Bible, uh, the, on the page 559, the the big number, 11, is a chapter. The small numbers, very tiny numbers, are the verses. hope you follow along in the reading of God's Word. also want to remind you that if you don't own a Bible and you would like to have one, you can have the one Bible that's in front of you. Take it home. We'd love for you to have it. Here's the Word of the Lord for us this morning. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them, in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you address us and you command us to live a life of rejoicing. Father, we confess that the, the world around us understands that call and that command and that pursuit in different ways. Help us, Father, this morning by your word. Help us to understand what do you mean when you teach us and even command us to rejoice. Father, help us speak to our own hearts to understand your vision and your ways of rejoicing. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. 
Friends, this morning, the passage we have before us is a very simple plea and command to pursue a life of rejoicing. There's no more introduction I need to give to that thought than to say there's four ways in which we see this command and plea to rejoice uh, in this passage. There's many more things we could say about rejoicing as, as people of God, as, as God's creation, as people made in the image of God, and rejoicing in a way that, that brings glory and honor to God. But this morning we'll look at four ways of how that rejoicing, what that rejoicing looks like. So if you like taking notes, here's the first point for us this morning. Pursue a life of rejoicing every day. Look at verse 7 and 8 in our passage, the first two verses that we just read. As you look at these verses, I want to remind you of what we've been through uh, last week, last few weeks. But last week, we have seen how God intends for us to live a life of faith, a life that leads into action, a life that manifests itself in, in actions of trust. Two weeks ago, we looked at how in, in a world of folly, God calls us to pursue a life of wisdom. Well, this morning, we see a call for a life of joy, for a life of rejoicing. As someone said, God intends for us not only a life of faith, but also one of joy. Oftentimes people think that the life of faith and the life of joy are exclusive, mutually exclusive. Like either you have one or you have the other. There are people who sometimes somehow think that to be a Christian, to live a Christian life, is to sort of sign away your right to enjoy life. Do you know people who think that way? Perhaps you yourself have been in those shoes at some point in your life. They sometimes think that, man, to be a Christian means to, to miss out on life. As if to become a Christian means to, to sign away your, your right to rejoice. Friends, you might be surprised to hear that the Bible has lots and lots of commands, many times to, to call us to to rejoice. As a matter of fact, I looked up the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, just the word rejoice, not, not the word joy, just the word rejoice shows up about 45 times. And then in one particular book of the Decalogue of the first five books of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy that speaks about the law and how to obey God, ten times we see this command to rejoice. Living a life of faith is not mutually exclusive from living a life of joy. As a matter of fact, the Bible wants to combine these things together. It is only he who lives a life of faith that actually is able to live a life of joy in the way that God has intended us from the beginning of creation. This morning, let's look at the way God speaks through the preacher of Ecclesiastes about this life of, of rejoicing. Pursue a life of rejoicing every day. How do we see that in verse 7? Well, look at, look at verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. At first sight, we might not know what to do with this verse. That was my impression the first time I read this passage this week. I don't know what to do with verse 7 until I, I remembered. I remembered this verse 7 is part of chapter 11 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this book, from the beginning to the end, and throughout it, 
keeps reminding us about how vain and how, how much full of vanity this life is. And that, that vanity is really it doesn't mean so much as much as a vainness, as much as it means it's transient. It is passing away. It is not permanent. Well, with, with being bombarded with this message throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, for the preacher to say in verse 7, light is sweet and pleasant. It is pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. All of a sudden, we see in this picture that could look like pessimism, could look like negative thinking, we see a, another flavor, another attitude. The, pre the preacher encourages us to see the goodness of what God has created, the simple things of God's creation, which we oftentimes take for granted. Things like the light of day, the light of the sun. Even these can be means that bring us sweetness and pleasure. But let me ask you, when was the last time that you found joy in simply looking at the light of day. And just, looking at, just looking at the sun. Now, I know here in Texas we have summers that are very long and very sunny. Even our winters are sunny in a way that everybody else in this, on this nation is jealous for the kind of winters we have here in, this, in, in the south. Friends, when is the last time that you actually just found sweetness and joy and delight in the sunshine that we have around us. Verse 7 gives us a hint that part of pursuing a life of rejoicing is the ability to rejoice in the basics, re, basic realities of, of creation. So many of us have become so accustomed to experience joy only when entertained by others. We are no longer able to see the delights of our creation. We have been so stimulated by artificial causes of joy that we have lost the ability to enjoy God's creation. Have you noticed how if people have nothing going on in their lives, they seem to fall into boredom? People become bored. Bored with life itself because they find nothing to excite them. They find nothing in their lives about which they can say, wow, that is sweet. Have you noticed that when a person is overcome by a spirit of negativity or frustration, he is so focused on his negative thoughts, he can't see anything good anymore. The preacher of Ecclesiastes models for us a view of life that is able to see the sweetness and delight of God's creation, even while living in a world full of vanity. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. Friends, could you say that? Could you say that? Such a statement comes from a person who doesn't need much to make him experience joy. The observation of, of verse 7 prepares us for the command of verse 8. Look at verse 8. So if a person lives many years... Let him rejoice in them all. The focus of this verse is not simply the command to pursue a life of, of rejoicing. That's true, 
but it goes beyond that. It goes further. It says, pursue joy in all the years that one gets to live, even if there are many years. Now, why is this stated? First, how easy it is for people, especially those who advance in age. You become tired of life, or you become tired of the weaknesses of life. You become tired of the, of the losses of life. So you start losing friends. You start losing family members. You start losing your ability to, to walk the way you used to walk. You start losing your ability to enjoy all kinds of tastes in your mouth. You start losing the ability to see clearly. You start losing the ability to hear well. We'll see, we'll see this picture next week in, in, in chapter 12. But with so much progression of, of constant losing, it is easy for us as we advance in years to lose the ability to rejoice in life. And we sometimes go to the, to the conclusion to think that somehow the young age is an age, a season of rejoicing. Sometimes people who are advanced in age look with, with jealousy and with a sort of regret that the age of, of youth is gone. They're no longer able to enjoy life as they used to. I was talking with this morning with, with Joyce Lyons. She came in this morning and she's, I don't even know how old she is. She's, she's quite advanced in age. And she's, she, she said, I asked her, how are you, Joyce? And she said, well, my, my old age is catching up with me. I said, you know what, Joyce? Joyce? The Bible has a wonderful word for us this morning in, in the message that's going to be preached. It says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them. In all of them. Oh, friends, the point of this verse is to say, even if you have reasons to, to think that, you have, that joy has passed you, that you are now in a stage of life that it's not easy to, to, in, to rejoice anymore, the Bible commands you, commands us to rejoice even in that season. The command to rejoice is for all the years of one's life, not just for some parts of life. And that's, friends, this principle applies not just to years, but also to weeks, also to days. Look at the second half of verse 8. Notice the ending of verse 8. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I wished the preacher didn't include this phrase in this verse. Why spoil the joy of what he just commanded us to do by reminding us that the days of darkness will be many? Is he spoiling the joy here? Is he telling us that the command to rejoice is for all these years? even for the years of old age, even for the years when, we, when our bodies become weak and sick, even for the days of darkness. It's not that the days of darkness will spoil the joy, although in reality, the days of darkness can spoil the joy. Let's be honest. Let's be transparent. It does spoil the joy often. But rather, the command to rejoice here is in the midst of this reminder that the days of darkness will come and they will be many, putting these two together in the same verse is not so that joy will be spoiled, but that the days of darkness will be made sweeter. 
You see how it works? It's actually, in the, in the Christian faith, it's not so much that, that suffering and, 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 and darkness takes away the joy as much as that we are actually commanded to overcome and, and live through those days of darkness with rejoicing in our hearts. But have you noticed how often we dread the beginning of a new week and look forward to the weekend? People hate Mondays. I look forward to, 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 to Fridays. Why is that? How often people um, look at, at their, their work with dread and they just can't wait to go on vacation and enjoy life once they get on that vacation. Friends, first of all, there's nothing wrong to look in anticipation of something else in the future. There's nothing wrong with that. But if your anticipations of joy in the future robs you of joy in the present, you are having sinful anticipations. Does that make sense? The, the book of Ecclesiastes challenges us to live with joy and to rejoice in all the years that we get to live, in all the days that we get to live, not just when going on a, on a vacation, but always. Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, the passage we read at the beginning of this service, rejoice in the Lord. And you complete. Always. And again I say, rejoice. Friends, when Paul wrote those verses, he didn't write them from a vacation in Hawaii. It wasn't that he had a wonderful life and he was just enjoying life. It wasn't the, the, the weekend kind of enjoyment of life. He was in prison, in chains. He commands believers as one who is in prison Rejoice always in the Lord, and yet again, rejoice. In a similar way, the preacher tells us to pursue a life of rejoicing every day, even while knowing that the days of darkness will be many. In every season of life, pursue a life of rejoicing. That's the first point. Here's the second point. Pursue the right rejoicing. Pursue the right rejoicing. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the, and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. If in the previous verse the command to rejoice seemed to hint at people who are advanced in age, in this verse the command to rejoice seems to be directed at young people. But notice what, what is going on in this verse. At first sight, we might be inclined to think that the first half of the verse encourages us to pursue any joy whatsoever. And in the second, there is the warning of, about the judgment of God. Again, it seems like the preacher of Ecclesiastes is on thin ice here, spoiling the joy by bringing up this whole command uh, or this whole reminder of the judgment of God. But is the first half of the verse encouraging us to pursue any pleasure whatsoever, uh, any pleasure that our own hearts desire or our own sight desires? Is this verse giving us a license to pursue any kind of joy? More so, there's a verse in the book of Numbers uh, that says, Remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, 
which are inclined to whore after. According to a verse like Numbers 15, 39, it might seem like Ecclesiastes 11:9 might be a contradiction. But is it? It's not. The preacher here is saying, go ahead and do whatever desire, but let that desire be tamed and protected by what is right. One of the TV commercials for a credit card, for a Visa card, had the slogan, enjoy now and pay later. Is this what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying? Hey, enjoy now and pay later? Is that what he's saying? Oh, no, friends. He's neither trying to say that, he's, nor is he trying to spoil the pursuit of joy. The meaning of this verse points a different direction. It encourages us to rejoice, but to have a very particular kind of rejoicing. It encourages us to rejoice and have a rejoicing that is compatible with the judgment of God, with what is right. The preacher is commanding us to pursue a joy that is compatible with a day of judgment. Can you pursue the joy that will stand the scrutiny of God's judgment? Or are you given to pursuing a joy that disregards the judgment of God? And the world around us would say, if you really want to pursue joy, do whatever you want. Just do it. And you'll, be, you, you'll find that joy. Don't worry about the consequences. They say that to worry about consequences is to miss out on life, to miss out on, on the joy of the moment. But here the preacher of Ecclesiastes challenges to pursue a joy that is compatible with God's judgment. The fact that the preacher calls us to know that God's judgment will scrutinize everything is because we are in danger of neglecting God's judicial activity. We often become indifferent to His second, to his second coming. We become indifferent to His judgment. We often live lives as if, as if there was no judgment, as if there was no accounting that we will have to give before Him. The preacher brings this up because he knows that we are inclined to pursue joy in a reckless way. We are inclined to pursue joy in a way that leads to destruction. Do it your way. And he wants us to prepare and to spare us from that destruction. The alternative is not to stop pursuing joy. The alternative is not to stop rejoicing. The alternative is to pursue it, but pursue it with the right aim. Pursue it in such a way that you know that God will judge everything. Friend, friend, think about all the activities that you do in life. Think about what you do and what you pursue doing throughout your week, especially the things that you enjoy doing. Think of all the circumstances in which you find enjoyment. Ask yourself this question. If Christ suddenly appeared in the midst of that activity, would you be embarrassed? Would you feel ashamed? 
so many times we pursue the kind of joys that we don't give any, any thought to the reality. I wonder, is God with me in this joy? Or am I trying to pursue a joy that is actually away for, from or apart from God's scrutiny? Think of it this way. Whenever you pursue joy, would you feel embarrassed or uncomfortable or ashamed if Jesus all of a sudden showed up in the middle of your activity, whatever that is of, of finding enjoyment? The issue of this verse is not whether or not to rejoice, but what kind of rejoicing are you pursuing? Are you pursuing a rejoicing that will stand the scrutiny of God's judgment? That's verse number two. Rejoice, rejoicing with the right, pursue the right rejoicing. The third point is rejoicing begins in the heart. Rejoicing begins in the heart. Look at, look at verse nine again. An interesting detail. This is a, a secondary point of the verse, but it's there, uh, and I want to bring it out to you. Notice, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and, the, and in the sight of your eyes. Do you hear the focus on the heart before the eyes? Let your heart cheer you. Joy begins in the heart. Many don't get that. Many don't have this joy in the heart, and therefore they seek it outwardly, and they seek to find joy in whatever they see and try to fill inside the heart that which is out from within outside. Don't get me wrong. We should find joy in what we see. The preacher says that. But trying to find joy only through what we see, only the external things, is to miss, to miss the seed of joy, the joy that begins in the heart. And when it begins in the heart, it affects what we see. There are many who are starving for joy in the heart, and therefore they seek frantically to find joy in these external things, and they never seem to find it. You know why? Because the joy of the heart is not supposed to be filled and replenished only by that which comes from the outside. Friend, there is a joy in your heart that God has put there and the ability to enjoy life that only He can give. Is there a joy in your heart this morning? Is your life characterized by this joy in the inner being of your life as well as in your outward? When there's joy in the inner being, there's going to be joy in the outward. But it's not true that just because there's joy in the outward part of your being that there's joy in the inside. Friend, this is, again, this is not to say that Christians don't go through moments of sorrow or grief. Yes, we do. We go through moments of sorrow and grief. Even the psalmist in Psalm 42 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. The psalmist recognizes that in order to address his sorrow or lack of joy, he must address his own soul. He must speak to his soul. He must dig deep in his soul and find out why. Soul, what is going on in you? What is going on beneath the surface that I am, I am downcast and lacking that joy? Oh, friend, realize that if there is no joy in your life, you may want to consider starting to address the heart. 
addressing your heart. What is happening in it that is causing lack of joy? And it's not just the things you see with your eyes. There's something else inside. But friends, what can we do to make our hearts filled with joy? There are many reasons why a Christian may lack joy in his life. There are many. A wonderful book that uh, I picked up reading uh, is a book um, that is actually a, a, a collection of sermons that have been transcripted on, in a book form by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, and and these, he, he preached a, a number of sermons on this theme, and he called this theme, and the book is called Spiritual Depression. And he addresses uh, the many reasons, the multiple reasons why Christians lack joy in, in their walk with Christ. And there's many reasons. I'm not going to be, address, be able to address in a, a few minutes all those reasons. But one of the things that Lloyd-Jones addresses at the very beginning of that series is one of the reasons why it's possible for people not to experience joy as Christians is because they may have had a superficial conversion experience. Their conversion may have been so superficial, they have actually not, may have not felt the, the guilt of sin. They may have not felt, the, felt the, the weight of sin. And because they've not experienced that weightiness, that, that grief of sin, they may have never understood or tasted the sweetness of Christ who takes away that guilt. We may have never understood rightly the, the nature of, of what it means to be justified and to be, to be brought into a relationship with God by faith and for our sins and the weight of our wretchedness to be taken away by faith because that is, has not been clearly understood the result of that is that are the joy of, of people who go through experiences of, Christ, of a Christian walk, but very superficially, end up having a very superficial kind of joy. Here's, here's, here's a quotation from, from, from Lloyd-Jones' sermon. You must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with a miserable Christian is that he has never been truly made miserable because of conviction of sin. He has bypassed the essential preliminary to joy, he has been assuming something that he has no right to assume. Oh, friend, the first place to examine your heart for true Christian joy is to see, first and foremost, if we've ever experienced the grief of sin. And on that backdrop, to see if we have ever tasted the sweetness of God's forgiveness given to us in Christ, superficial Christians will have superficial joy in their hearts. Nominal Christians, which means that's a word, it's a label for saying Christians who are, or people who are Christians in name only, but not in nature. Nominal Christians will have nominal joys. It'll be like that that soil in the parable of the soils who will respond quickly and, and, and rejoice quickly, but that joy fades away quickly also as soon as it becomes inconvenient. Oh, friends, realize that true Christian joy 
It's a joy that is able to permeate all the seasons of life. If someone never experienced true Christian conversion, their joy will never be a lasting joy. That's why the first examination for why there might be lack of joy in someone's heart is examine whether or not they have experienced a true Christian conversion, a true faith that rests solely on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. It is the news of that forgiveness on the backdrop of the weightiness of our wretched sinfulness that we can actually experience and, and, and realize a lifting of a burden and an experience of joy that we cannot explain. Psalm 51, the psalmist, when he is downcast, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Oh, dear friends, if you have not been saved in nature, in reality, whether or not you call yourself a Christian, if you have not been saved in the depths of your heart, you have not yet tasted the goodness of God, which is most supremely shown in the offer of forgiveness of our sins for all those who repent and believe in Christ. Friend, the greatest encouragement I can give you this morning, if you are in that category of either calling yourself a Christian, but you're actually not, or actually not being a Christian at all, you know you're not a Christian. The greatest encouragement for the recipe of joy, of pursuing a life of rejoicing, is repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Turn to Christ. Taste that the Lord is good. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd love to encourage you to talk to someone around you who is a member of this church or a Christian and, and talk more with them about it. Now, it is possible, let me say this, it is possible to experience true salvation and yet to go through seasons of sorrow or lack of joy, of depression, of various kinds of depression. Again, Lloyd-Jones' book would be a wonderful resource I, I recommend to you and encourage you to consider. But let me say simply this. Even for Christians who go through the experience of, of lack of joy, one of the places to come back to, to replenish that joy is to go back to the joy of salvation. If the joy of salvation, if the joy of, of experiencing and seeing that the weight of your sin has been lifted away, the guilt of your sin has been wiped off before the eternal judge of this universe, your guilty status has been wiped off clean. You are no longer declared guilty and, 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 and a sinner who is, is condemned by the, by the righteousness of God. You are now declared righteous, even though you have done no righteous thing. If you cannot find joy in that declaration of justification, friend, ask God to, to work that joy of salvation afresh in your heart. There's no other better recipe, a starting point to work through this recovery of joy than to go back to the joy of our salvation. In the forward to the book, Lloyd-Jones says, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. I love that. The greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt 
but that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. Friends, if we are not a people, when we gather here, when we live our Christian lives, we're not a people where, where rejoicing is seen or where rejoicing is pursued even when difficult. I am not saying that rejoicing is going to be easy. I am not promising some sort of utopian experience of life where rejoicing will come easy. That's why it's, it's a command. God commands it because we're going to be often in places where it's going to be easy to drop that and just wallow in our frustrations or pain. Some people lack joy in church because things are not the way they used to be. This danger is very real, especially for people who have been Christians in the same church for a very long time. But, oh, beloved Christian, remember that joy is not supposed to be caused only by what we see. Joy is not supposed to be caused only by our traditions. Our joy is supposed to be, our joy was never supposed to be based on what, what we do. Our joy was supposed to be founded on what God has done for us in Christ. Some of us have attached our joy, our pursuit of joy to earthly things, and when they, those things are gone, we are hit with an avalanche of joyfulness, and we don't know even from where to pick up our things. Ecclesiastes is not simply encouraged to have joy, but commands us to have this joy, but realize that the seat of this joy is the heart. The fourth thing that we see in this passage, the final one is remove the obstacles of joy. Remove the obstacles of joy. Look at verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, the, the word uh, translated as put away pain could also be translated as put away evil. It could go both ways. One of I want to look at what is the vexation, especially what is the vexation or the, the evil that we're supposed to remove. Look, in the, the Hebrew word refers to that which angers us. Vexation is that which angers us, whatever irritates us, whatever grieves us. Several times in the Old Testament, this word is used for how God reacts against our sin. He is vexated. He is irritated. He's made angry. He repulses against sin. It is also used for a woman who is jealous uh, against another, another woman. Um, but in Ecclesiastes, the vexation refers to any grief or irritation that comes from life in general, especially when we see the vanity of life. There are so many reasons that could irritate us in life. But can, you, can you think of some reasons right now in your life, right now, that just irritate you. Need more time? What do you do with them? What do you do with those things that irritate you? Here's what the Ecclesiastes says. Put them away but not the things that irritate you. Put the irritation itself away. There are times when we cannot put away the things that irritate us. Sometimes we can do things about it. Oftentimes we can, 
but many times we can't. So what do you do when you're stuck around things or circumstances that irritate you, cre creating you frustration, creating you anger? What do you do? You can't put those things away. The Bible calls you to put away the vexation. You know why? The danger is that if you don't put that irritation, those moments of frustration and angerness away, they can actually grip your heart and turn you into cynicism and turn you into just negative thinking about life in general. Everything appears to be bad. We no longer see reasons to rejoice. We're no longer able to see that light is sweet and the sun is good. Notice the problem is not that there's no reasons to rejoice or the problem is not that there are reasons to get irritated. The problem is that our hearts have become infected by vexation, by irritation. That's why when the preacher gives a command to remove the obstacles, He's not saying remove the circumstances of your frustration, but remove frustration from your heart. It has already gripped you. It has gripped the, the, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our thinking. The heart has been infected, infected with a negative virus. And just as the seat of rejoicing is the heart, so also the seat of frustration is the heart. If we are to learn how to deal with frustrations, the frustrations of life, we must know how to deal with them at their root. And their root is in our hearts. Oh, how easy it is for people who are frustrated to simply look at the circumstances that cause their frustration. We think that frustration is caused by, by the things outside of us, by the things that we see, just as we think that joy is caused by the things that we see. And we don't realize it's really caused by what's inside. Friends, there are times when I have legitimate reasons to get frustrated. At situations, at circumstances, at people. But as I examine my own heart, I realize oftentimes, even in those legitimate moments of frustration, I'm actually crossing a line of sinning into being gripped and allowing my heart to be gripped by frustration. And at that moment, I'm actually seeing everything with a frustrated lens. Friend, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, put that frustration from your heart. Put it away. Don't linger in it. Don't let it be there. It is not supposed to be there. Ask God to help you see His mercies in life. Ask God to help you see His goodness in the things around you. Help God, help, ask God to help you see God's grace in the people around you. Don't let your heart dwell on frustrations. It is not good for your soul. It will do you no good for your pursuit of rejoicing. So four points. Four points about rejoicing. Pursue a life of rejoicing every day. Not just in some seasons of life, not just in some seasons of the week, every day. Pursue the right rejoicing, that which will stand the scrutiny of God's judgment. Rejoice, pursue rejoicing in the heart first. And if you do that, you will see that the things you see around you 
will become joyful and, and you'll see the joy around you much more often. And remove the obstacles of joy. Remove the frustration and whatever causes you, but the, the act of frustration, remove that from your heart. How do you steward all of life in such a way that you radiate with joy? Friends, for some of us, we need to examine our hearts and ask, why is it that our hearts feel the lack of joy? In the process of that examination, I encourage you not only to be praying and asking God to help you see that, but don't stop there. Ask another Christian brother or sister to help you on that path of self-examination. Help, ask someone else to give you help to dig deeper in the well of your life. Because chances are, if you have been already gripped by this lack of rejoicing, there are things that you're no longer able to see in your life that are there. But you're no longer able to see them because you've been gripped by this frustration. And the joy of having another brother or sister come alongside you and help you examine and, and help you ask some more difficult questions and help you encourage you and dig with you into the heart. Oh, friends, there is a reason why God has put believers in the life of the church, in the life of community together, where in love and compassion for one another, we would ask the deeper questions. We would go beneath the surface. We would not be happy with just a smile on our face, but really ask, seriously, what is going on in your heart? It is okay to be vulnerable with me, to tell me why you're frustrated, tell what brings you frustration. But let's go deeper. Let's not, be, let's not be satisfied with a superficial joy because a superficial joy might be a sign of a superficial Christianity. We should not be content with that. We should want to dig deeper. The kind of joy that permeates all of life. Oh, friends, our life together is a life of mutual encouragement. One of our promises in our church covenant as members of this congregation is we will rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We will link arms with one another in this pursuit of living a life of rejoicing. No matter what we go through in life, we are called to be surrounded by other Christians with whom we can encourage one another, who can comfort us, who can challenge us through good times and bad times to encourage us to pursue Christ and show that pursuit of Christ through a pursuit of rejoicing. May that be true of us, not just individually. May that be true of us as a congregation, as members of this church. When we gather here every Sunday to be a genuine rejoicing on our hearts that is manifested through our demeanor, may that be true of us. And may Christ and God and the Holy Spirit be glorified through the joy of His people. Would you pray with me? Father, teach us